Hello everyone and welcome to Space 10 Radio, coming to you from Mexico City. Today's talk is one that cuts straight to the heart of the matter. What kind of design thinking is needed in this day and age? Only two centuries have passed since the onset of the Industrial Revolution, a blink of an eye in the span of geological history. And yet, already, we are living in a time of climate emergency. As we have undeliberately designed our way into this mess, the big question is, how will we design our way out? As we have lots to dig into, this conversation will be the first of a two-part episode. We'll hear from Kara Pecknold, Executive Design Director and Global Lead for Sustainability at Frog. Nancy Tuyon, Design Ethicist, Technology Executive, Entrepreneur and CEO of Tuyon Signature. Mariam Bujalil, a design teacher and researcher interested in the creation of well-being through design. And Nanette Weisdahl, New Business and Innovation Deployment Manager at IKEA Purchasing and Logistics Services Mexico. We hope you enjoy part one of this engaging conversation. I want to start by perhaps getting each one of you to make explicit a lot of the things that were either explicit or implicit in your presentations, perhaps by even sharing again a, a few of the examples. So what, each, what is each of, uh, of the panelists' uh, interpretation of design thinking or, or the current design paradigm? And what are some aspects of these established current design paradigm that you still uh, can show or you still retain in your work. Maybe we can go in this order or, <laughs> or not. <laughs> no? Well, I think I appreciate the history from which I come uh, as far as how I've learned the design process, making the power of craft, I think some of the things that I want to maintain are humanity. I want to maintain an appreciation for difference. I want to maintain, you know, continued value of the material which we are using. And, and I think it's exciting to think about, you know, other things that go beyond that. But for, to have that foundation, I think, is really important because I couldn't s sit here tonight and say, oh, do something different, and if I didn't understand some of the past, and I didn't understand the context uh, from which I come and from which others on this panel come from, as well as others in the, in the space here. So I think, I think for me, the, the people part of it is really important to maintain, and I think the planet part of it is really important to maintain, but maybe we haven't been quite as well-balanced in both of, both of those things. Thank you. Nancy. So, you know, I got traditional education on design thinking that a lot of folks have seen, but um, design thinking has kind of evolved for me to start thinking a little bit more about co-design in the process of design thinking. Um, you know, I, I, I love telling the story of the time I went to India and I had asked a bunch of folks if I could uh, get a sari on me because, you know, but I, I'm used to cultural appropriation, so I was like, let me ask everybody if it's okay for me to wear something that seems traditional. I got permission from a lot of people to get this traditional sari design, go to the store, the guy doesn't speak my language, but you know, I, language has never stopped me, so I just keep repeating Beyonce over, over and over again so they can understand the quality I'm looking for. Um, <laughs> eventually the guy, you know, goes to the back, we find something that's perfect for me, and in about two days I have this sari made, and I'm in the streets, dressed in this beautiful sari, and everyone is staring at me, because clearly I'm gorgeous, you know? And, um, <laughs> 
And uh, I'm in a farmer's market, and a friend runs up to me and goes, oh my God, what are you wearing? And I'm like, I swear to God, I asked people, it was fine, you know? And she said, you're wearing a wedding dress. And I had no idea that gold and red were design colors for wet. So here I am looking like a hungry runaway bride, you know, in this space. And what's interesting about it is I, I thought about what I learned in school about the fact that casinos are painted red to keep you alert and they pump oxygen into a room to keep you there longer. And all these interesting ideas around human factors engineering, which is where my base in education is from. And I realized there's a lot of missing design understanding because we don't think to work together with the community we're designing for. And so I really hope that design thinking evolves with this concept of how do we design together collaboratively with community and not necessarily from the standpoint of just the education that we were limited to. Thank you, Nancy. Mariam. Thanks. <laughs> I'm, I've been working with design thinking for a while now with uh, students and teachers and uh, it, it works well. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of things we can rescue from it. I think that it's like a, the pendulous right now. We're, thinking, oh no, having the human, humans at the center is not right because we've been depleting our resources and, and a lot of things. We have, thinking about humans in the center has led us to design the iPhone and <laughs> a lot of uh, devices that are not exactly making us autonomous, right? I mean, they connect us with people, but we are attached to them all the time. We cannot make any decision without looking at them. So, yeah, well, having humans as the center of the design practice is obviously not perfect. I would um, maybe rescue the observational practices that come with it, um, the um, ethnographic tools that has given us. As a, here's the teacher again. Esio Mancini talked about designing when everybody designs, uh, stating that we designers should um, address complex social problems, but are very bad prepared for it, <laughs> very bad. So some of the tools um, displayed by design thinking, I think, have, um, are the starting point of a path towards understanding that. And hopefully um, we will take the pendulous again to the center and find some balance between human and um, nature-centered design. Um, and it, I don't know, maybe towards a systemic way of thinking in, in where everything's balanced. Thank you, Mariam. Nanit? Yeah. So, Karen, you talked about curiosity in your presentation. And I think curiosity is one of the biggest things we need to have as designers. We need to be curious about everything. Um, I'm very much into systemic design and I'm of course into systemic design because where I sit in my everyday, it's about really changing systems. So what I talked about, circularity, but we also see now that our whole supply chain is broken. And it took like three months during the pandemic to break that. It was a very carefully designed system over decades, three months and it was broken. So now we have a ch chance to redesign it. And I think we see a lot of this, that's what the pandemic did to us. We are redesigning how we work, we're redesigning our everyday, 
we redesign systems, and I, I think we should take this opportunity to really do that, and it's right now, it's there, and it's open. So for me, systemic design is really what I find interesting right now. Product design is nice. I, I've worked with that a lot, uh, and I love going to people's homes and understanding their needs and how they live and all these things, but we need to change the world. So that's where, where I am right now with design. Thank you, and that's great, because in, in a way, uh, your response, and, and actually everyone's response uh, already uh, started to explore not only where we come from, but where we want to go. So um, design thinking, of course, in recent times has become a name for a set of specific you know, practices or methods or even style of collaboration, etc. But it used to mean something a bit more basic, so a, a way of thinking that for some people was the characteristic of uh, designers. Um, so we have explored, and each of you already mentioned a few of the things that your current work still uh, brings from, this, uh, from design thinking or from the established design paradigm. So I, I, now I want to ask you, and perhaps we can start with you, Nanette, since you already mentioned systemic design now, what are some abilities or ways of thinking that your work can, uh, can, can, we can use from your work as an example of these ways in which design, designerly ways of knowing and thinking are evolving? So perhaps around systemic design? Yes. But yeah, then I want to go back to what I also talked to earlier, that uh, we went from designing a product to the person and we should still do that. We shouldn't stop doing that, but we have to understand the whole system from A to B. And then, of course, at the layer, Nancy also uh, added now to really understand where our biases are. Because I think we have so many of these uh, that comes into it. So, yeah, maybe design is becoming more complex, but our job is still as designers to make it to that even though it was a line and it's difficult, but to, to create that simplicity. Because there was somebody, you're sitting right there, that asked me in the break, how do I convince my CEO that we need to look at this differently? And in order to do that, you also need to talk the business language. You need to be able to talk business to do systemic design. So that's another important factor in that, because they're not gonna listen to that you wanna save the world or that, uh, uh, yeah, it's, we, we don't like to be cold like this or they're gonna listen to what is the business impact. And as you also said, Nancy, it was huge business impact that came out of really doing the good thing. I wanna add to that a, a couple points. Um, one of the things I noticed in my career when you talk about like how to actually influence folks to listen to you, because I, I mentioned I am a black woman, and it is not easy for folks to consider giving me things. They typically want to maybe talk about my hair all day, you know? But um, what I've learned, at least from working in industry for a while, is that you want to um, develop something which I call as a quick win. So I categorize the, the things I try to get my managers or whoever, I, my stakeholders to work on into four boxes. One is luxuries, one is quick wins, one is strategic wins, and the other one is more like low-hanging fruit. Luxuries are like cool factors, you know, like 
when Uber decided to put the little light on the car so that you know what car is coming, like, is it going to change the world? I don't know, <laughs> you know? But it's a cool factor, and if you have influence already, you can get there. But what you want to do is get that buy-in first, and that's what I call the quick wins. So you want to actually make sure that people see you as credible when you're working in these industries before they then give you more, and that's when you can start working on strategic things. And so when I worked at Uber, for example, uh, there was very few researchers, and they wanted me to work on insights globally. And they even gave me a problem to start with. They gave me like, here's this thing that we developed to get insights. And I instantly in my head was like, this is not gonna work. <laughs> you know, I don't wanna even wanna do this, right? I wanna do something different. And so I knew that I couldn't just tell somebody their baby was ugly, right? <laughs> you know, I had to figure out a way to show them that I was credible and make a quick win. And so I came up with this concept called the Global Scalable Research Program. And it really started with something small. I just wanted to create office hours that had folks from around the world that you can just call in. Anybody can just call in and ask any question you want based on the project you're working in. I wanted people to understand that um, a lot of the assumptions that they make, they need to turn into questions. I want to encourage people to do that. This is a life hack, it will save your marriage, okay? <laughs> so just don't make assumptions about people, turn things into question marks. And so here was an opportunity in the engineering process, we have product requirements documents, right? Where I said, here's a global checkpoint. All you have to do is show up somewhere between 6 a.m. and 10 a.m., right? And you can talk to anybody in Brazil, Mexico, or India. And just tell them your idea. And so what happened is we realized when people started calling in and telling folks their ideas, 50% of those projects heard issues that they would have seen in their project had they actually done the research in these countries. So for example, uh, we wanted to make um, a, a driving drivers easier to, to pick up passengers and make more money, right? So this idea came up with, we're gonna make sure that folks know about traffic, um, um, you know, that's coming up, and weather. Those are the key factors that came out of the United States. When we actually put this out there uh, in front of Mexicans and Brazilians, I tell you they laughed at us, at the design. The first thing they said is like, why do we need to know about traffic? There's always traffic, <laughs> you know? like. That's ridiculous, you know? The second thing they said is like, weather, we can look up the skies. You guys know the clouds move, right? Like you could see things going on. What we want to know about is events, something that we didn't think about, right? What we want to know about is, um, in Brazil, they said we want to know about the events that we can go to and pick up passengers because that'll make us more money. But Mexico was the game changer for us. Mexico said, we want to know about the events so we can avoid the events because they burn gas. You know what I mean? You know how you just turn off your car if you've ever had a Mexican driver just turn off the car and wait? They're trying to save on that gas money. You know what I mean? And so what we learned from that experience and just having conversations with people is that here's an opportunity for us to expand our design earlier on and that bought me credibility, right? So here's this tiny thing. They're like, what else can Nancy do, right? And so I said, actually, I have lots of ideas, <laughs> you know? And that's when I ended up developing this new system of design where we could pull insights earlier on, first forcing individuals to check their ideas in these office hours, and then after that, actually conducting bi-weekly studies where people could actually take their new designs based on insights from the office hours, test them out, and promise you could only participate if you were promised to change your design based on the insights that came out of these places. And so that's how I ended up buying more credibility to work on other projects and things like that. So sorry, I answered two questions in one, but yeah. That's how I kind of approach like, design thinking. Thank you. Cara, do you want to continue? I think design thinking is in business. I think what, has, uh, what is the risk is it becomes so codified that we don't think. 
And actually, we rely on thinking and we don't do. And so for me, things that Frog does, which I'm sure many folks do, is prototype, prove it. So we do insights, we do research, we go around the world, we ground ourselves. Um, I think there's some frogs here from Mexico City, yeah. Uh, they, they do the, you know, they face the, the, the reality of what is the need. What my fear has been, or my concern has been, is when it becomes codified, we think a room filled with post-it notes and Sharpie pens is the way that we solve the problems of the world. And I think all of us are talking about the same thing of the business of the world is saying, yes, we want to think differently, but thinking differently requires us to prove the point and to show the point. And I think there's a great opportunity for that, but um, in many cases, to Nanette's point, it's so systemic now that it's not the one cool workshop that you can run where you come up with new ideas. It's actually long-term relationship. And some of those things that have happened for me personally wasn't what I thought it would be. In one case, I had to literally coach a chief design officer to have a conversation with the CEO. And instead of talking about it like a codified thing, we designed a ceremony and we created an actual artifact that represented their relationship. And it became this poetic moment, not a codified moment, no deck, no PowerPoint, to present the new idea of what could happen in the business. So sometimes I think it's these things that we perceive that are not the craft of design, and they're not the design thinking methodologies, they're our humanity. And how do we show up and understand that in business, these are people who have pain, they have risk, they have challenge, and they need creative solutions and creative minds to be able to help them to execute on it. Thank you, Cara. And Mariam, I, I think that the Cara's response in a way leads quite naturally. I should have let you speak before me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I... I I think it's perfect because uh, one of the ways that... Uh, you can pivot the conversation. <laughs> a lot of the things that you show, uh, at least for me, uh, made me learn a lot about community design. And I think that's probably one of the ways in which your work is showing how to, how to move forward. I don't know if you, have, if you want to elaborate on that or... Well, you know, our, our perspective is different because we are the academy. This is where we designers are being trained. I mean, so when you're saying you have to build long-term relationships. Well, yeah, you can build long-term relationships. I have had with students and colleagues, but it's not always the case. We know students are gonna leave. So, um, but from a systemic point of view, I was thinking, well, yeah, prototyping, I was gonna say prototyping, is the only way to guarantee, um, prototyping in the sense that you um, fail fast and cheap. You have to do that again and again and again. I guess you guys do it, all of you do it. And the other, maybe bringing, to bring a systemic approach to the, to the design pro processes is going to sound funny because it's working in labs, actually, working in collaboration labs. And going back to what I was saying, maybe we're putting too much pressure, too much responsibility on designers. Systemics thinking has to bring transdisciplinarity in. So, yeah, for, for us in, in, in the academic world, it has to be about bringing other ways of thinking 
into the academic process because we are very used to, as the universities have been organized from a thousand years ago, to understand something, you have to kind of compartmentalize it. Yes, I said it right. And that's why we have specialized designers, architects, biologists, scientists, whatever, psychologists, whatever we have. And now we find ourselves thinking, we shouldn't be that specialized. We should know more about other things. We should, and, and as we can't, because we only have one life, um, we need to bring other people who know other things so that it can truly be systemic and that maybe the way universities can add to this systemic approach. I forgot to say, change. <laughs> when I said that, yeah, we chose the path of ontological design is that we closed all our academic programs at Ibero, even though they were successful, and build completely new ones in which the, um, the actual making of the designers to know the materials, the glue, the, the textiles, everything that's in there, the making, the designer as maker, is also um, complemented by working in teams and disciplines and, and uh, in labs at the end. Lab, in, in terms of a, an, a space that's relaxed, that's cool, much maybe like this one I'm imagining, uh, and a place that, that um, allows for everyone, everyone to speak freely and really put something in the table that's more than was, than was requested. I had an aunt long ago who used to, when we got together as families, used to tell us when you leave the table, you have to take what you used and something else. In the reverse, you have to bring to the table what you're gonna eat and something else. So maybe that's what universities can, can add to the systemic approach, maybe. That's, that's really interesting. Uh, thank you, Mariam. You, you I, really, I really appreciate what you said about failing, because I feel like we don't talk about failing in design enough. You know, um, uh, and also just experimenting with curiosity so that you can design other ways of doing things and other ways of thinking. Um, I'm using Uber as an example only because it's very relative here. Um, and so I remember when I was working on Uber Eats and I wanted to conduct a study and I was responsible for bringing the research participants. And I just decided, you know what, screw it. I want immigrants. I want only immigrants in this study. And I remember um, uh, one of my colleagues said, Nancy, some of these folks don't even speak English. And I'm like, well, how do you think they're reading the app? You know, so if they don't speak English, I mean, we, are we designing it so that it can help them uh, and speak another language? I want to understand how they're using this technology. So we bring them in. And also, who, is, who do you think is bringing your food to you? <laughs> you know, do you think it's just regular folks who's doing this? There's immigrants in this country are doing this. We, we need to consider them as a, a customer type. And, um, one of the things about Uber is there's perks for using the product or being a driver or being a courier for the services. And in the study, I asked them what things meant, just you know, pointed at different things. And one of these people looked at the word tuition and they said it means free food. 
And first of all, nobody knew what the word tuition meant. Like, no one could pronounce the word. I was thinking to myself as I was doing the study, I'm like, why didn't we just write education, that we offer free education, you know? Um, and so I asked them, how do you know that this is food? And they looked at a picture next to it, and it was a picture of an apple. And in America, an apple signifies education. But how would anybody in the rest of the world know that? You know, it has something to do with like giving an apple to your teacher, which no one ever has done. <laughs> you know, maybe I did. But, <laughs> right. But the point was, here was an opportunity that we learned, again, the insights in running a study that was a risk that could have failed, it could have blown up in my face and I've been like, oh, well, you were right. You need to know English <laughs> to do this or whatever. You know, um, that we learned that we can use image designs, icons to communicate with people who have language barriers, right? And we can do so in such a way that could potentially help the entire globe out because design and images and icons is something that you can communicate with people who may have language barriers. Um, in fact, we even tested language in some places. We tested language in Bangalore to see, what if we put this in Kannada, which was a local language that was there to see how people responded, and learned very quickly that language has their barriers too. You'll know this in Mexico. The word swipe translated, nobody knows that word. <laughs> you know, they prefer the word swipe in English, right? And so we found that there was actual opportunities to keep things in English that mattered as well. And there you go, you're now creating design guidelines, right, that can help with operating with immigrants, operating with folks in India, operating in places like Mexico from a design standpoint of like, you know, how drivers think, you know? And so um, there was a ton of opportunity in just failing fast and learning from our customers and then hopefully designing and testing again. Thank you, Nancy, that's, that's great. Uh, taking a cue from that, I think that um, one of the, perhaps one of the pillars of the current, currently established design paradigm is the idea of uh, satisfying desires, satisfying needs, producing value, producing delightful products and all that. And I think, Nancy, with your work, we have learned a lot about the importance of not uh, universalizing, you know, these needs, these desires, these, uh, you know, these, these ideas that we can very often on, inadvertently carry on uh, or carry to other places as if they were universal. So I wanted to uh, maybe see if uh, the, the other panelists could share a little bit about the ways in which your work has also moved away from a universalist perspective, the ways in which you are trying to find um, more diversity, more representation, designing for uh, you know, like wider ranges of types of, of humans. Mm -hmm. Who wants to, to take that one? <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's a big question. Um, I, I think, I think at, the, at the end of the day, we treat research as all research. We go to the countries where our clients need us to go. And that's often a prioritized location. Um, so in many cases, we are looking for the need. We do try to find something that is common um, so that there is a common ground foundation upon which we can build. But if I think about some examples um, where we're looking at, let's say, the use of energy or the use of a product that maybe means different things in different countries, we do have to go and do specific research to be able to understand. I don't think that generally when we go out to design a product, in our first round, 
we are saying this is for all. And we do iterative processes to enable us to understand. So yes, we always hear about the minimum viable product, right? MVP, minimum lovable product, some people call it. Minimum viable experience, whatever word you use. Um, and we use that as a next layer and a next iteration. I think, if I think about some recent work that I have done, um, it was very specific to the United States. It was about bringing diversity, equity, and inclusion to fashion curriculum, so the next generation of fashion designers, and, and bringing sustainability to that. And I really have to applaud the professor, or the head of the school, who brought professors and students of diversity to the table. I don't think that that curriculum get, should get plopped down into Germany, as an example, which is where I live. Um, I don't think it's the right answer for all contexts. That being said, her program is international, and she does draw and attract students into the US to study. Is the first iteration of how we've helped to reshape that curriculum going to be the best one, the right one? Maybe not. I think as the students come and experience it, those students will reformat it. Those students will bring new insight and interpretation. But the first pass, we kind of have to take a step, take a leap, and try. And I think that's the hard thing in some of these challenges is that we are afraid to take the step so we do nothing. And we pause and we do absolutely nothing because we're frozen, right? Our ignorance, our um, competence level feels like we can't move forward. And I think in this case, we gave them enough tools to experiment with the fall launch uh, of the new student groups coming in. And you know, we're in continuous dialogue with them to see what might need to be adapted or changed, but it's not one for all. Yeah, Nanette, if you... Yeah, I think in IKEA we still have huge issues with this. So we realized uh, 10, 15 years ago that it wasn't working that everybody was sitting in Sweden designing for the rest of the world, <laughs> uh, which is still a lot of what we do today. But we opened um, an office in, in Shanghai and we have opened an office in Poland where we have our design teams also now sitting designing, <clears throat> being closer to, of course, uh, those markets and those ways of living. But I, in, we don't have anything in Latin America. We just opened the office here that I uh, worked for uh, a year ago. But I think we have still so far to go. And, and this is part of why Space 10 is here also. Uh, this is one way for IKEA to, to reach out and try to understand more uh, and try and include other ones in, in the thoughts uh, of how we, we need to meet the future. There is a super interesting uh, website called uh, Dollar Street. I don't know if you know about it. But it's, uh, if you go in and, and search or oh, Google uh, Dollar Street, uh, it will come up. Um, and they have collected pictures and movies of everything that people do in there every day. So everything from brushing teeth to doing dishes to sleeping, how does a bed look, how does toys look, how does your kitchen drawer look, everything there. And what's, it's, it's a super interesting website to research on and you can choose then I want to know about this, or I want to know about this, I want to know in this income bracket. And what you will discover uh, is that it's not necessarily so much about what country you live in as it's about the income bracket you're in. 
So people in this income bracket, their kitchen drawer will look more or less the same across. And people in this income bracket, they will cook more or less the same abroad or around the world. It's super interesting because we have such an idea of that it's a cultural thing, but a lot of it is also related to income. And I think we still sit in this 12% uh, of the population that uh, rules the world more or less uh, and see things from our side. So there is so much to do out there <laughs> still. Thank you, Lanette, that's great. Mariam, do you want to share anything? perhaps from the perspective I, of the new Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, that there are three themes that go across all new um, school programs, university programs at Ibero, which are sustainability, um, interculturality, we call it diversity, and um, ah, <laughs> equity, um, gender, uh, gender equity. So, yeah, those three are permeating along everything. Of course, some permeate more than others, and we're still working on it, and, but still we have this conversation about having these three things going along all our discussions, all our conversations, and everything. Now, having said that, I wish I could have a map of Oaxaca right here. You will see that Oaxaca has, is one of the largest states in Mexico City, in Mexico, in the country, sorry. And um, it, they speak about 33 languages. They are about 33 different countries, nations, maybe. And, um, and such diversity is very rich, but also very challenging. Oaxaca is one of the poorest states in Mexico. So if I may go on with this logic, Diversity is not always the greatest thing. <laughs> it's, it's very challenging. People don't, don't find ways, usually don't find ways of talking to each other, to have a conversation, to, to even look at each other's eyes and try to understand one another. So for us in Mexico, we were talking about this, exactly what Nanette was saying. Probably in Mexico City, we are like most of the cosmopolitan cities in the world. But what about the other, you said 12%, I think that's too much, but maybe the other 90% of people that are living in the country. And I'm just talking about Mexico because that's my experience, but this happens in a lot of countries too, especially in Latin America, Africa, you know, the global south again. And um, I think um, what we can do is to bring this conversation in. I was once in Quetzalan, which is a, very old town in La Sierra of uh, the mountains in Puebla, which is about five hours from driving from here probably, because the road is really steep and curvy. And um, as we arrived there to work with this uh, group of women that are artisans there, and, and we started speaking and explaining what we were doing, their leader, that she stood up, Doña Rufina, and she said, don't you speak Nahuatl? And I was like, mm -hmm. no, sorry, I don't speak Nahuatl, which is their language. And she said, well, thank God we have translators. <laughs> oh 
my God. Yeah, she's right. It's such a, a learning moment because we, we always bring in what we want to bring with such eagerness that we sometimes have to stop and humble down and say, yeah, maybe I should start speaking now instead of speaking English or speak both. So diversity is it's easy to, to talk about, but when you're on the ground, on the field, it, it feels different. <laughs> it's very challenging. Can I maybe just, the one thing I find really interesting, what I'm noticing, so clients often come to us, say we'd like you to help us solve for X. And what we are noticing happening in what is called an RFP, a request for proposal, uh, is things like, please show us your diversity, equity, and inclusion policy. Are you a B Corp? Uh, what kinds of social impact initiatives are you involved with? So I think that while we can say it's in the work, it's also rising up in companies where it is, and, and we had a project where we were scored every week on how diverse our team was. And we literally had to switch out people on our team to meet that need. And I think this is hard if you don't have skilled designers across all groups, ages, gender, in fairness, what's going to happen is you will not be able to meet that criteria. And so enabling designers in, in various parts of the world and various you know, groups and, and communities, I think this is what we're going to start to see, which I'm grateful for, but it was never there before. It wasn't a requirement to win the work. We had to, um, we just had to have the designers. Now we have to have a different kind of designer. Thank you. Nancy. I was just gonna say very much along the lines of that. Um, you know, one of the things I noticed when I got to Space Tenants, the first thing I always notice is I look at the people they hire, right? And I will say Space Tenants has done a really good job at hiring people from different international backgrounds. You know, you have Persian folks, you have Asian folks, and things like that. And so, like, one of the most obvious ways to help solve for this is to just make sure that you're hiring from different spaces and also hiring differently. And so, for example, when we were hiring, uh, my team went to look for researchers in Mexico, researchers in Brazil, researchers in India. UX was not like this common term that you just kind of pull from the universities. And so we had to hire differently. We looked for high empathy-like positions. I interviewed folks that were videographers because they could tell someone else's story. I interviewed storytellers. I interviewed um, um, even psychologists. Um, you know, things like that so that we could create an associate program is what we did. Get them in at a level, upskill them, and then get them to a point that they are conducting UX research. But this means that you're hiring from different socioeconomic backgrounds. That means you're not hiring from the typical universities that you hire from. You know, that means that you're intentionally making sure that you have a diverse presence in your team. And one of the best things about design that I appreciate is we normally don't have this problem with gender so much because they will hire women, you know? And men in this room alone, there's men and women equally here. And so it's really important that just as a premise in these businesses that you look at your teams and say, are they representing the world we're trying to serve? Are they representing all of Mexico or do you just have people from the same university in Mexico City all in your firm, you know? And so, to, again, the intentionality, which is a design principle I have, is very important here. Thank you. And, and I think I'm, I'm getting like a couple of insights from this last section. So the idea of, of course, bringing research, but also uh, building diverse teams is necessary in order to 
approach this, uh, the challenge of diversity. But uh, Cara, you mentioned uh, a term that I really like and that I also found in your, uh, in your presentation, Mariam, the idea of enabling. And you just said enabling, and something that I was also getting from your presentation, Mariam, was the idea of enabling uh, wider communities to get involved in the process of design. And I think that's also something that I can see part of, uh, of the development of the design paradigm uh, as a clear direction. It's been also, and here I'm bringing another term that I saw in your presentation, uh, Nanette, the idea of, of democratic design. So the idea of democratizing design, uh, bringing uh, people that may not be professional designers into the process of design. Uh, please, Nanette. Can I just kill that darling? Please. <laughs> That's well what we're here for. Well played. <laughs> we, had a, we had a program for years in IKEA where we invited all our customers to come and design with us and nothing came out of that. Absolutely nothing. Because it's so much more complicated. It seems to be so easy to do good design, but it is super complicated. And gado to all designers that can make it look so easy. So. You need to, there are so many things you need to understand and that's back to that we don't just design a product anymore. We design a whole system. Mm -hmm. And if you don't design, if you don't understand that, then you will just come and say, oh, I, I love this material or I love this shape, but that's not what design is about anymore. It's about so many other things. We have a whole basement full of people that are just doing research in materials. Yeah. And as a designer, those are the guys you want to work with. You want to go and be with people that are going to use your design. You want to understand how they live, but they cannot do the design. No. That's, that's not there. They are there to inform you and teach you and all that, but they cannot do the design. So I think it's a big trap we all went into thinking that, oh, let's come together and everybody are designers. They're not. Ezio Mancini notwithstanding, design when not everyone can design. And design is not art. I think that's something that people confuse as well. Design is problem solving. Yes. You know, um, I love showing people the example, like if I were going to build a stove, have you ever seen those stoves with the four uh, things on top and then the, across the front row there's all these little buttons? Uh, how do you turn on the top left corner of the stove? Does anyone know? Does anybody look at the little pictures of the little holes that you have to turn around? This is the, the way you solve that problem. If you, instead of place the row of the, um, what do you call it, the uh, Burners, buttons, buttons, the buttons that you're turning, if you replace those and place them in the same style as the actual stovetop in a box of four, now you are working intuitively with people. Now you are solving a problem. You're not just designing something that just, well, we have to get it on the machine, so let's put it on there. You're thinking more clearly about how can we make sure this is easier for people to use? How is this intuitive, you know? Can I even ask you, and why do you always have four people? Yeah, you how don't even have to. use four? And if you have to use all four, you can't put them there because they can't be four at the time. So you actually don't want to have four. You just want to have two because that's what people use the most and then you can have one under the table that you can pull up and use else and then you get more workspace. So now we problem solve. And people live in small spaces so they want more workspace, right? It's about killing the, this is how things have looked for years so that's why we do it the same way but you have to question this all the time. 
My mother might be offended, but she'll use all the stovetops if there was more. Like, let me tell you, my mother will put a fire in the backyard and make a fifth and sixth one, okay? So it depends on culture as well, but I hear you. Um, I actually what remember. do you do when you don't have electricity where people cook? So you have these patsari, maybe some of you know, patsari stoves that, are, that use wood. And then you have the, the, the Lorena stoves, which are designed to, lose, to use less wood so that they're more efficient, energy efficient. So yeah, there's a lot, of, a lot to think about that. And even yeah. in Panama, they have stoves. They, Germans came out to Panama, I'm sorry, I can't remember the specific uh, research project, but they came out and they decided they wanted to upgrade the stoves in Panama and show them the designs that we have in westernized society. And when they went to revisit the stoves to see how people were using them, they found out that people were just putting dishes in the stove. You know what I mean? And the reason that they Very were Very common in Mexico as well. Very common. Haitians as well, you know what I mean? But the reason they were putting dishes in the stove is because the original design of the stove, which was this circular thing in the middle of the room, meant more than just something you cook on. There was an emotional connection to it, right? The emotional connection is this is where we bring family together. This is how we people bring people together. And if you forget those elements in design, you're stripping opportunities for people to still connect, which is why they're using it differently. So it's really important to understand the stories behind these things, how people are using it, and making sure that as you're considering these things, you're, you're, you're inserting some of these elements so that they're not lost. I don't know how to make an emotional connection with a stove, but I'm sure stoves can be designed better with an emotional connection, you know? Many thanks for tuning in to listen to this two-part episode. As our conversations continue on ground in Mexico City, please join us on Instagram at Space10 for live updates. Sign up to our newsletter via Space10.com and we're on Twitter and Facebook too. See you soon! <laughs>